pray together. In Psalm 56, David says, This I know that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. In God I've put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Oh Lord Jesus, how we do trust you and how much we realize we need to trust you more. But Father, we thank you that we can put our trust in Jesus. We thank you that we can sing those words and we can seek to to put them into practice in our lives because your word tells us and proves to us over and over again that you really are a trustworthy God. You can be trusted with our lives. You can be trusted with our hearts. You can be trusted with our feelings and emotions and our circumstances on our very best days, on our very worst days, and, and every single day in between, Father. You can be trusted. And, and yet, oh, how we've just sung, we need the grace to trust you more. Father, we live lives on planet Earth, and life on planet Earth is hard. One of the things we do when life is hard, Father, is we pull things back into our grip rather than leaving them safely in your hand. We look at our problems and the people in our lives and the things that we want to control but we can't and that we want to fix but don't know how, and we try anyway, Father. Sometimes it's because we're desperate, and sometimes it's because we're stubborn. Sometimes it's just because what we've always tried to do. But Father, we want to take this moment, having sung these words, having been ushered in such a, a beautiful way a few moments ago to the cross, just put all our stuff back in your hands. We confess to being thieves, stealing it back out. We give it back to you because you are the good and faithful and trustworthy Father who can take it all and not just handle it, not just fix it, but transform it for your glory and for our good at the same time. Father, because life is hard sometimes and because sometimes it's uncertain and, and all the rest, Father, we come back together each Sunday because first and foremost, we need to be reminded who you are, what you're like. We need to give you our praise because no matter what, as we just sang a moment ago, all of our life in every season, you are so God and there's a reason to worship and there's a reason to praise. Father, we also, though, we come to you this morning and we'll see it in this psalm here in just a few minutes. We come because we always need your help. That's what your word is here for, and that's what your church is here for, to show us the way to go, to teach us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And Father, my prayer is just for the next few minutes that people would not be listening to what I have to say or evaluating the words that come out of my mouth, but Father, that every one of us, myself included, would be listening to your voice, which never stutters, which never hesitates. You always know what we need and how to communicate it to us. I pray you're going to do that now, Father. We would simply ask, as we always ask, that the power and the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you'd guide us in truth. The power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you'd guard us from confusion and error and misunderstanding. Father, that you'd deliver our souls, our lives from the stuff that gets in the way. And for these precious few minutes together, that you'd help us to see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we open your word. May we ultimately see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And may we leave rejoicing here in a little while. Father, not just because we came to church and heard some comforting words or some pretty songs, but because we sat at the feet of Jesus, who loved us enough to lay his life down for us and then take it up again in victory and triumph and offer that victory to us as well. It's in his name that we ask all these things and we pray. Amen. You may be Let's go in our Bibles together now to the book of books, Psalm 55. 
where we are, if you're visiting with us this morning, if you've not been here recently, we are, in fact, looking at the Psalms, a selection of about a dozen Psalms in these weeks together to understand how to use them. I've said this each week as they were originally written, to use them to help us when we're conversing in prayer with God. And what we're seeing, and we're going to see this this morning as much as any week so far, is that the Psalms really do teach us to pray in every imaginable season of life. And before I tell you about this one, I simply want to read the passage, Psalm 55, in its entirety together, and then we'll begin to walk back through it as always. So hopefully you've got your Bible open to Psalm 55, where beginning in verse 1, down through the end of the passage, this is what the Word of God says. We're told that it is for the choir director on stringed instruments, that it is a mascal, I'll tell you what that means shortly, of David. Here's what David said, here's how he prayed. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and surely distracted. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I'd wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I've seen violence and strife in the city. He's talking about Jerusalem. Day and night they go around her upon her walls. Iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it's you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walking in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. For evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle against me. For there are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them. The one who sits enthroned from of old, Selah, with whom there is no change, and who do not fear God. He has put forth his hands. Now he's not talking about God. Now he's talking about his enemies, David is. He says concerning them, he has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He's violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden upon the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Now, I happen to think that the word betrayal is one of the ugliest words in the English language. Not because of how it sounds. It's a very ordinary sounding word, but of course what it represents. Betrayal. Because what's a betrayal? A betrayal means that someone who was once with you is now against you. Someone who was once for you and supported you is now doing what they can to utterly destroy you, or at least they have chosen to discard you from their life. Betrayal. And the particularly ugly thing about betrayal is it's almost never ever by accident. It's intentional. It's meant to hurt. And more often than not, it takes us totally by surprise. 
The betrayee, the one being betrayed, generally speaking, never sees it coming. And I say that to you, that betrayal is one of the ugliest words in the English language, because that is exactly what King David, late in life when he wrote this psalm, was dealing with when he prayed this prayer, when he wrote this psalm. He was grappling, and you see it in the language, with the depth of agony and sorrow and grief and even rage that I don't know that he had ever felt before, at least not to that depth, and may never afterwards have felt quite this again. Because here's the story. Here's, as best we understand it, the dilemma that David faced. In the aftermath of his adultery, his sin with Bathsheba. We talked about that two weeks ago in Psalm 51. And all that came with it, adultery and murder and deceit and, 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 and hiding and, and all the sort of sins that David committed. In the aftermath of that, what the second half of the book of 2 Samuel tells us is that as a result, God forgave his sin, God absolved his guilt, but he did not remove many of the consequences of what David had done. And in fact, what David had done through that season of sin had descended both his family on one hand and his kingdom on the other into utter chaos. Things are a mess. And really the culmination, the climax of of all that chaos uh, was when his own son, one of his sons, Absalom, the Bible tells us that he was a, a powerful and a handsome and a dynamic, persuasive man. His own son rose up against him, rebelled against him, uh, got his father out of the way, off the throne, illegitimately took over the kingdom of Israel and literally ran David out of town. That's what Absalom, his own son, did that to him. Awful. But as, as difficult as that was, and dreadful as it must have been, we can only imagine, what took that dreadful situation and made it utterly devastating for David is that he learned, when he learned, again, taken by surprise, that not only had his own son rebelled against him, and maybe he saw that coming. Sometimes, I suppose, a parent can. But when he discovered that along with his son Absalom, one of his most trusted advisors and one of his closest and dearest friends, a man by the name of Ahithophel, joined Absalom, turned his back on David, ran the other way, joined with Absalom in in getting David out of the way of doing everything he could this man Ahithophel did to destroy him. You can read the story yourself in 2 Samuel 15 through 17. We're not going to look into the details of it any further than that right now, except to, to note here in Psalm 55 what this betrayal, the betrayal of one of his dearest and closest friends was doing to David inside his heart. Here's what was happening. Go back again starting to verse 10. David looks at the city of Jerusalem, the city that he, God, used him to establish more than any other. And here's what he says as he looks about his own kingdom. Day and night, verse 10, they go around her, my enemies, upon her walls. Iniquity, mischief are in her midst, not the way it's supposed to be destruction, oppression, deceit, do not depart from her streets. Now here in verse 12, here's what really gets David. But the problem is it's not an enemy who's doing this stuff, who reproaches me. He says, then I could bear it. Enemies are supposed to make your life hard, right? He says, nor is it one who hates me, who's exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself. I could keep some distance. I could say, well, fine, you don't want to be part of my life. I don't want to be part of yours. But, verse 13, it, listen to the passion in these words. It is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. The man, we had sweet fellowship together. We were tight as brothers in the Lord. We, we walked together in the house of God in the throng. That is, we worshiped side by side, hands in the air, lifting our voices to God. 
David says what this one has done, verse 20. This is a chaotic psalm. He's all over the map. In verse 20, he talks about how he felt about that. He says, this man, what has he done? He's put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. That's me, David says. He's violated Ahithophel has his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. David is saying, I've been betrayed, and my heart, my life is a mess. It's awful. We can well imagine, and maybe if you've been betrayed, you can identify with some of those feelings too. But even if you haven't, even if you can't identify personally with what David was dealing with and grappling with here, surely in life, particularly as a believer, you found yourself in situations where your primary urge, your prevailing impulse, is the very same as the one he had in response to it in verses 6 and 7. Look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. David said, I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. He is not singing, I'll fly away, O glory, I'll fly. When I die, hallelujah, bye. That's not what he's singing. He's saying, I want out. I want to run. I would wander far away. I'd fly away and be at rest. I'd lodge in the wilderness, hastening to a place of refuge. David is saying, I want to get in my chariot. I want to get on my horse. And I want to go, go, go. And as far as I'm concerned, pretend none of this ever happened. You ever felt that way before? I want out. It's too hard. Bet you have. I have too. So why is this psalm here? Well, I believe one of the things this psalm is here to do is to teach us how to pray when we'd rather run. How do I talk to God when what I really want to do is run? I want out. I want to fly. And I don't want to look back. In the time we have left, I just want to show you four things from this psalm that David teaches us. These are not prayer cues. Up to this point in this series, I've said, here's a way to start praying. Sort of work your way through prayer. These are not prayer cues. These are simply truths to cling to. When you need to pray, but you'd rather run. There are four things as believers we need to remember. The first of which is this. God's still listening. God is listening. And he hears us. When we need to pray, but we'd rather run, the Lord hears us. You know, every week so far in this series, I have said to you that there is a best way to start praying. We start with open Bibles, but then we begin praying. Who remembers with what? Somebody call it out. Remember? I heard it where? Worship. We begin with worship. We don't run to God's hand. We go to God's face. We celebrate who he is and what he's like, his character, his nature, his attributes, his glory. We, we start with a focus on him. And I believe with all my heart that's the best way to pray, to start with a, a focus on, on God's character and his glory. But I will admit that sometimes that's not the most practical way to pray at all. That sometimes they're just in the moment... There are seasons, there are circumstances where a a, a prolonged moment of worship isn't possible, but instead, when you're in the midst of trouble, as David was here, and the cry of your heart is not so much, I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise will continue, and the Lord is my shepherd. No, no, the cry of your heart is one word. Help, exactly, help. Lord, help me. And that is exactly how David got the ball rolling in verses 1 and 2. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Look at your Bible. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me. Answer me. Because I'm restless in my complaint and surely distracted. David is saying in a single word, help. I don't know what to do. 
But if you take another look at those two verses, you see that that cry, that cry for help actually sprung or even erupted from a conviction that David did possess about God's character. And, and that, conviction, that conviction is that, that God listens. That no matter what season we're in, no matter what we're facing, God is listening when we call on him. That's the truth he's leaning on hard in this betrayal, in this trial. He starts that way in verses 1 and 2. He returns to it a bit more calmly in verse 16. Look at that, what he says there. As for me, I'll call upon God and the Lord, everybody say will, save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur. And he, what does he say? Will hear my voice. Our God is a God who listens. Our God is a God who listens when we pray. And that's the first thing, it's the mo- perhaps the most important thing to remember. When you need to pray, but you'd rather run, God's listening. You may want to run. He's not. He won't. He's ready to hear what you have to say. And that's really good, because you know what the second thing is this prayer teaches us, this psalm teaches us? First of all, God is listening. Always, always, always listening. Second of all, it's okay to be totally honest with him. Second thing this psalm teaches, and it's an interesting and maybe to some of us a challenging lesson, it's okay to be totally honest when you're talking to God. Let me ask you something. 30 seconds of, of crowd participation. I need some, just some, some verbal response. Think about betrayal again. That's what David's facing here. Maybe you've been betrayed in life. Maybe you haven't. What are, the, what are some of the emotions or feelings a person might grapple with when they realize they've just been betrayed. And I'm not looking for sanctified Sunday school answers. I want to know, how do you feel when you've been betrayed? Just in a word. Give me three or four. Angry. Hurt. Crushed. What? Groaning. What else? Devastated. Sad. Alone. Pretty good list, huh? It's exactly right. All these emotions and feelings and more. And you know what? I am so glad that the Bible tells us that's exactly how the man after God's own heart felt when he was betrayed. I'm so glad about that. That the Bible tells us that's how David felt. Because you can look at him sort of like a Christian superhero, right? He was the man after God's own heart. He got it right and he knew what to do and things worked out and he praised the Lord. No, not necessarily here, not yet. David felt all of those things as he was praying and more. Just look at starting in verse 2. He says, I'm restless. I'm complaining. I'm distracted. Verse 3, I'm in trouble. Verse 4, my heart is in anguish. Terror. The terror of death has fallen upon me. I'm afraid. I'm trembling. I'm feeling horror. I want to run. He's dealing with the same stuff you would if you'd been betrayed too. He's a real guy with real feelings and real emotions. And I think it's so important and it's so precious that God has given us and shown that to us in his word. You know why? Because it shows us that we can be honest when we're talking with God. We can be honest when we're conversing with the Lord. And that's important because there are those who tell you you can't be. They don't say it that way. So, you know, when you talk to God, you better be kind of on your proverbial Sunday best. Get the words right. String your sentences together. Don't show anything but, but respect and, 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 and honor. And, 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 and don't tell him. Don't get into all that emotional. Really? Listen, I would never, 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 never condone being irreverent or flippant in prayer. Never. Because God is God. And he's worthy of all our praise and glory. But what I would condone is honesty. God, here's where I am. Here's how it makes me feel. 
Here's what this is doing to me on the inside. I mean, think about it. He already knows how you feel, right? He already knows what's going on. So why dress up in counterfeit clothes when it's time to pray? God, here's where I am. And it's not holy, but it's honest. And I'm bringing the hurt and the heartache to you. Why not spill it to the one who can handle it? If you think I'm playing with fire there, or maybe David's playing with fire here, don't, don't look at verse 15. Whatever you do, don't look at verse 15. Ah, you're all looking at verse 15. I said, don't. Maybe you don't think I'm playing with fire, but you know why? Because David's even more raw in verse 15. As he looks at what Ahithophel has done to him, as he contemplates how his son has betrayed him, he's been sold out and shut down and pushed aside. They want him dead. Here's how David prays, let death come upon them deceitfully. Or do to them what they just did to me. Really? Let them go down alive to shale. Can I translate that for you? Send them straight to hell because of what they've done. Wow. That's the man after God's own heart. Listen, I'm not saying that's a holy sentiment. I'm saying it's an honest one. David's saying, God, here's where I am today. And if you're worried that we don't want to give people permission, we don't take this too far, we better be careful. Listen. Listen to how Eugene Peterson, I told you I was going to quote him, that I quote him a lot. Let me quote him again. Because he helped me sort of crystallize this, and maybe he can put it far better. I think he can than I, than I ever could when he talks about sort of praying our our anguish, and even our hate to God. Peterson notes, he says, sometimes we have to realize that, quote, the psalmists are angry people. For in the presence of God, they've realized the world is not a benign place where everyone's doing their best to get along with others, and if we all just try a little harder, everything will work out all right. That's not the world we live in. It's not. And that's why Peterson continues, he says, we must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. For the way of prayer, listen, here's where it's important to us. The way of prayer is not to cover our unlovely emotions so they'll appear more respectable, but to expose them so that God can enlist them in the work of his kingdom. In other words, he can use them to change me and then change me so that I can be an agent for change and grace in the situation. Listen, let's put it much more practically. We all know people, Christians included, who have mishandled anger, right? Mishandled fear and agony and betrayal and hate. And rather than taking it to God, they take it out on everyone else. Well, what happens sooner or later? It comes back around to bite them hardest of all. It does. Hate mishandled will destroy a person. Figuratively and eventually literally. And it's awful. But what David, I think what David, here's what I'm trying to say. I think what David is showing us here is that being honest with God about the way we feel, when we'd rather run, ultimately, if we keep it before him, can lead us to places of healing and hope can lead us to places of healing and hope that stuffing it will never take us. That pretending it isn't there can't do. I also think it's no accident that this Psalm's first Selah, remember we talked about Selah a couple of weeks ago, appears in the midst of this raw and and most vulnerable and transparent, unfiltered sections. David says, behold, I'd wander far away. I'd lodge in the wilderness after spilling all this emotion. And he says, Selah. Remember what Selah means? Okay, I'm done talking for just a minute. Now, Lord, you deal with me, what I've just said. And I'm surrendering once again to you. David spills it all, and then he lets God go to work on his heart. That's the pattern. That's the the lesson to, to take from it. 
After spewing it all, he paused to let God deal with it. So what do we need to know about prayer when we'd rather run? First of all, God's listening as much as ever. Seems like he's not there, but he is. Secondly, it's okay to be honest. We, we, we work through with him, before him. The safest place to work through all our trouble is in his presence, isn't it? And then the third thing to remember when we begin to lay our requests before him, and this may sound a little odd, so I'll have to unpack it for us for a couple of minutes, but a third thing to remember is that history matters. Third thing to know about prayer, about talking with God when you'd rather run, is that history matters. I think I said to you, and if I didn't say it clearly at the beginning, let me say it again. David wrote this psalm, as best as I can tell, not after the trial and the betrayal had passed, but in the middle of it. Just look at the language he uses and the way he pours his heart. This is not a man looking back with great perspective. This is a man saying, here's how I feel today. That's my opinion. I think that's the way this psalm was formed. And if that's the case, what it means is that David was still at a place in writing this psalm. He didn't know where it was going. He didn't know what God was going to do next. He didn't know how the Lord was going to connect the dots, work it all out. Is it going to be okay? Isn't it going to be okay? Is it going to destroy the kingdom? Is it going to continue to consume people I love? All of the future remained to be seen. And I think knowing that helps explain really what I see as the two primary requests David gave God in the midst of this trial. The first one's in verse 9. When he said, confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. In other words, mix them up. Cause their counsel to be confusing so they don't know what to do next. And then in verse 15, we talked about this already. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. Shut them down. David's got two requests, mix them up or shut them down. And you know what? Both of them are rooted in biblical history. And there's language sort of beneath the surface in the original Hebrew that suggests that there are two events David was specifically thinking of when he prayed this way. When he said in verse 9, look at it again, confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. You know what he was thinking of? The language there in the Hebrew suggests that the Tower of Babel, uh, one of the first great rebellion stories in the Bible, Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, it says that everyone on earth spoke the same language, and they got the idea in their heads they're going to build a great tower to heaven to show the world that they are, in effect, themselves gods or godlike, how great we are, rebellion against God. Remember what the Bible says God did? He came down and confused the languages so they couldn't communicate with each other. Just stop, divide, mix them up, and it did, it worked. They rebelled, God stopped it. Now when he gets to verse 15 and he says, Lord, uh, uh, take them down alive to Sheol. He's thinking of another Bible story, maybe a less familiar one. It's the story of what's called Korah's Rebellion in Numbers 16. Korah's Rebellion. Israel's wandering for 40 years in the wilderness under Moses. And on multiple occasions, the people got tired of Moses, and they got tired of wandering, and they rebelled against him. This was one of those times. In this case, a man named Korah, apparently influential, got a couple hundred people on his side, and he was making life miserable for Moses. And he wanted Moses out, and he wanted to stop. And, and it came to a head in Numbers 16, the book of Numbers chapter 16. And they all came to Moses, and they're griping and complaining, calling for his head, whatever. And the Bible says that in the midst, at the peak of that rebellion, God caused the earth to open up beneath them and swallow them alive. You thought that was just in the movies. It's in the Bible. <laughs> And there's strong evidence in the original text to suggest that's exactly what David was praying here. <laughs> Basically saying, Lord, either one works for me, all right? <laughs> you can mix them up so they don't know what to do next, or you can just wipe them out. 
Those are his requests. Again, maybe not holy requests, but honest ones. He's saying, Lord, this is what I'm looking for. And his point was simply this, Lord, it can't continue. What is happening to your people, what is happening to your kingdom, what is being done to to disgrace your name must be brought to a stop. And so essentially what he's saying is, Lord, I know what you've done before. Do something like it again. Do something to stop the madness and the rebellion against you and your authority and your kingdom. And, and, and you say, well, it's good for David. What do we do with that? How does that help us? Well, what I think we can take from that in a crisis, in a hard time, when we're confused and we'd rather run than pray, is this. God not only knows who we are and what we're dealing with and how it makes us feel, he's been there before. And he's gotten his people through it. That's what David was calling. God, this sort of thing has happened before, and I know you always had a plan. You always work something out, and I'm going to trust that in this season, this hard, hard season, a betrayal, you will bring it to a stop again. When you don't know what to do, you lean on who God is and what he's done. History matters. History matters, and he's done it without fail every time. And that's why he finally, in the last couple of verses, arrives at this assurance, it's the last thing to remember when we need to pray, but we'd rather run. Very simple, very clear. Verse 22, sooner or later, help will come. Understand this. In your trial, even in a betrayal, sooner or later, help will come. If you go back up above verse 1 in this psalm, we're told that it is a, if you look at your Bible, a mascal of David. It's a term that appears a few times in the Psalms. We haven't talked about it yet, but the best we can do with it is is masculine means teaching psalm. It's a song or a prayer with a message to deliver. And in verse 22, David delivers the message. And I do think, if, if I had to guess, verses 22 and 23 were written after the fact. I think verses 1 through 21, David's talking about the trial. And in verses 22 and 23, he's sort of gotten his wits about him. He's sort of figured out what to do with it. And he changes voice. He's no longer talking to the Lord, verse 21. If you look at verse 22, he's talking to us. Talking to his people, talking to himself, but he's talking to you and me as well. And here's the lesson David delivers from the betrayal and, and, and the prayer he prayed when it happened. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. Let me say that again. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous one to be shaken. The interesting thing about that, I know a lot of Hebrew, but I know where to look for answers, and one of the things I discovered about that word burden, maybe you're in a hard place today, but it's not a betrayal, but it's something hard. That word burden literally means in Hebrew, your lot. It means whatever has just been handed to you. This is now your lot in life. You didn't ask for it. You didn't place a request for it. You didn't order it, but it showed up at your doorstep anyway. And it's hard. That's what a burden is. It's what has been handed to you, and and you didn't ask to receive it. So this applies to all of us, right? And here's what David says. Take that deal. That's something that, that somebody just handed to you and cast it on the Lord. That word cast is a cool word, too. It means fling it. We're not talking about an underhand toss. We're talking about a fastball across the plate. Fling it to the Lord. Cast it to the Lord. Take that thing and give it 
over. Somebody or something gave it to you. Yes, I understand. God allowed it to be part of your, your plan in your life, but he says, now bring it back to me. Cast it upon me. Why? Because he'll sustain you. And he'll never allow, ultimately, those who are his to be shaken. Now, as we've talked about before, that doesn't mean it's going away tomorrow. You might get to cast it on him again tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after that, and maybe for a really long time. But this is present tense. Just keep casting it back on him. You want to steal it? Cast it back. You want to take it? Nope. Cast it back. Put it back on him. Give it to him. And here's David's message. Doing so may not erase the problem right away, but it will, if you'll do that, it will keep it from consuming you. It will keep it from destroying you. Cast it on the Lord. Get busy praying. Remembering he hears you. It's okay to be honest. History matters. He's dealt with it all before. And sooner or later, help will come. Listen, your confidence in him will not be wasted. In his really encouraging and helpful commentary on the book of Psalms, Ralph Davis tells a story I'd never heard, and we put the picture up here on the screen, about the uh, very familiar, the iconic picture of the flag raising at Iwo Jima in World War II. You've probably, I would imagine, seen that photo before, and there's lots of stories associated with it. I've heard some, but I certainly have not heard all. But Ralph Davis talks about, in his commentary, tells a story about the man on the far right, the one planting the base of the flagpole in the ground. And, and what he tells the story is this, is immediately after that picture was taken, it was published in papers, 1945, still while World War II was happening, all over America. And one of the papers it appeared in was a local Texas newspaper that was being read at the time, the next morning when it came out, by a soldier who was home on leave from the war named Ed Block. And he was looking at the picture and he was reading the story when his mother walked by, Bell Block. She saw the picture, paused, looked at it, put her finger on the man on the far right, and she said, that's your brother. That's my son, Harlan Block. (laughs) He's like, Mom, you're nuts. It's his back. It could be any one of millions of young men. And he said, Mom, we don't even know if if Harlan is on Iwo Jima. We know he's serving, but we don't know where. And And you know what she did? She tapped it, and she said, that's my boy. I know my boy. And she wasn't going to be persuaded otherwise. Shortly after the picture was published, the names of the soldiers were released. And the release the army put out said that the man on the right was a soldier by the name of Henry Hansen. Said it's not Harlem Block, it's Henry Hansen. But Mrs. Block was not convinced. (laughs) In fact, they found out that, that her son Harlan actually was serving on Iwo Jima. He was in the battle, and a short time after this picture was taken, he died on Iwo Jima. And then two years later, the army issued a correction. They said, we went back, checked the records, and that's not Henry Hansen, it's Harlem Block. She she was right. It's my son. She said, I know my boy. I know my kid. You know, as we've gone through this series in Psalms, we've said many times already, God knows us. He knows his sons. He knows his daughters. He knows who we are. He knows what we're going through. He knows what it's like, and he knows how to help. But I actually think in Psalm 55, David is giving us a corresponding truth. What David's really saying in verse 22 is, yeah, God knows me, but but I also know my God. I know who he is, and I know what he's like. And you know what I've learned? I can cast my cares upon him. He knows me, but I know him. 
and I can cast that burden on him, and he'll sustain me. And he will never allow me to ultimately be shaken. And you know how he arrived at that conviction? He forged it in prayer. He didn't arrive at it, it didn't fall out of the sky. It wasn't a memory verse in Sunday school one week. He forged that conviction through prayer. God brought him to the place where he said, I know who he is. I know that he's faithful. I know that those who trust in him will ultimately not be disappointed. And that's why the big idea this morning is that prayer, listen, prayer is where God helps his hurting people. Prayer is where God helps and meets his hurting people. Many other things may encourage us. Many other things may be necessary as well, but it's in prayer where he helps us and reminds us who he is. Father, thank you that as you look at our lives this morning, you know who we are, where we are, what we're dealing with, and how much it hurts. And for those of us on the other side of the trial, Lord, we can look back and say, and, and, and you really were there, we can join our voices with David and say, yeah, the right thing to do is to cast our burdens on the Lord. He will sustain us. He'll never allow us to truly, ultimately, totally be shaken. Father, my prayer is for those who are in it today. Father, that they would realize, remember each one who you are, how good you are, how faithful you are, how strong, how safe it is to spill it all in your presence and know that we're still your kids. Father, thank you that you have shown us David praying and many others in every season of life, teaching us that we can do the same. Father, take the things of truth spoken this morning and seal them in our hearts. Take the things of the flesh and let them be forgotten so that we leave savoring only Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.